Welcome to the One O'ahu Podcast. I'm Brad Higa, and today is Thursday, November 2nd, 2023. We're back this week with Mayor Rick Langiardi. Mayor, you visited Mayor Bisson on Maui last week. Can you tell us about that trip? Yes, I can. Um, you know, I it was really kind of hard to describe it in a way because I was really looking forward to going over and being supportive and knowing the other two mayors, Mayor Roth and Mayor Kawakami, were coming over in sort of a show of force in, in support of Mayor Bisson and especially the people of Maui to have that representation that, as we said, you know, they're not in it alone. All the counties are going to pull together uh, here in Oahu, Kauai, and certainly Hawaii Island. And so that part, I was pleased to be able to sort of put that on the record with everybody, you know. But I will tell you, um, as gruesome as I thought the pictures in the video were that I had seen, and you know my background in media, I've been looking at pictures for a long time. Seeing it that way and then actually standing there in the midst of the ruins and recognizing, you know, just how expansive it was, because we drove pretty much through all five square miles. It's not like it's where you would typically see a house burn down. It is. I mean, you know, we've seen those aerial shots and whatever. But when you're on the ground at that level, you realize, wow, there's a lot going on. That said, to be positive, uh, I was inspired by the Coast Guard. They gave us a presentation. They've already removed something like 68 craft from the water. There was a couple more floating. There was several of the big ones that were sunk. They're going to get out. They already removed 5,000 gallons of petroleum from the harbor itself. Marine life has come back. It's looked good. Uh, the banyan tree had lots of green on it. So all of that, irrespective of all that has to happen on the land, and even the wonderment of how do you recreate a Lahaina that was, you know, so old, so quaint, so historic, so romantic in so many ways? What is that ultimately going to look like? I don't know if anybody's got their head around it. But um, so it was it was that kind of a meeting. It was so bittersweet, really sad on the one hand, but good on the other in that everybody's looking for that starting point, that feeling of resiliency, that sense of hope sense that, you know, we're going to get through this, but we're in the very early stages of that. And I don't want to be Pollyannish and I don't want to be naive. A lot of people suffered greatly and continue to suffer as a result of the anguish of having lost everything, not the least of which is losing loved ones. And what were your conversations with Mayor Bisson like, if you're, if you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's not like we had any, you know, top secrets. It was constantly being supportive, was checking in on him, knowing full well that um, this is not a normal day at the office by any stretch. You know, you don't go home and, and shut this off. All of a sudden, it's become a reality that will probably be every hour of his administration even if he serves full, two full terms, this is something that's going to take a very long time. And because it was such extensive loss of life and the town and a lot of other things that have gone on, um, it's it's an incredible leadership challenge. So I think we were trying to be supportive, check in with him, see how he felt, see if there's any insights or anything we could possibly offer to help him get through this process uh, as the leader of Maui County. And you all were on Maui to launch the Kokua for Maui Month. 
Um, yes. Can, can you tell us about that? Well, you know, you should get Sylvia Luke on because this is all her idea, but it sounds good. We're all going to be participating. It. I, look, I mean, we got to be realistic, too. A lot of giving has gone on, and, you know, and there's only so much people have, but this will be a month in which, again, we're trying to show solidarity. So and I don't want to take any, I think it was Derek Kawakami that said it, although I know I inferred it as well. When Maui hurts, we all hurt, you know, and that's why I, my message to them was, you're not in this alone. We're here to help. And man, this is by the way, was very acknowledging of the fact that before you even had to pick up a phone, we were already providing relief, not just us, but um, Kauai and the Big Island and and trying to help. So I, I think that this is a month of one more time as we as we turn the corner now with Halloween behind us and we're in the Thanksgiving mode and thanks November is a, a giving month that we appropriately in this particular year, because of the extensiveness of this tragedy, focus on Maui uh, and ask that people, if they can, give a little bit more. But I can tell you that that was one of the things that I was encouraged by uh, is the flow of federal money, not only coming in, or it has come in, but will continue to come in, is not insignificant. So from that standpoint, at least for the duration of those funds, you know, financially, it's, you know, it's not like life stops. So you hear reports about the amount of money's being lost, some 11 to $13 million in what was revenue before because of what's happened with downturn in tourism or whatever. But the displaced people, the people who were impacted by the fire, the subsidies they're getting from the federal government, the money's being paid to the hotels who are the recipients um, uh, is is significant. and And so... Uh, uh, that at least in the short term, that kind of relief is is going to help. I think the biggest thing right now is really the human condition, the human, the spiritual and psychological condition of people. Because, as I said, it's one thing to go over there for a morning slash afternoon and stand in it. There are people who and we saw them as we drove around through the neighborhoods who were back looking for anything in the rubble one couple showed us they found a couple little metal pots that belonged to this woman's like grandfather her father rather and they were so pleased that they were able to find that in the rubble and we saw people in hazmat suits on with the glasses sifting through just looking for some kind of keepsake some kind of something that that touches yesterday if you will Uh, you know that's so uh it's going to be a long road ahead Mayor, yourself and your managing director have assembled a wildfire risk assessment group here yes. on Oahu. Who makes up that group and, and what is it supposed to do? Well, it's a lengthy group. I mean, you know, we had everybody in there that you could possibly have. I mean, well, and I'll talk about what it's supposed to do. But, you know, from fire to emergency management to uh, climate change people in there to our legal team in there to SHOPO, you know, SHOPO HPD, I'm sorry, Uh and a first responders in Jim Ireland. I mean, it's a combination of people who would probably gather. Uh, and actually, I want to take that back because we would be broader than that. But this is sort of team specific with mm-hmm. the res- respective expertise, if you will, in the room on this. And so that's exactly what it's supposed to do is, you know, in, and even earlier this week, we had a pretty extensive brush fire, which was 
taken care of mm-hmm. really well by uh, HFD and Mililani, but um, we know how vulnerable we are. The risk assessment is how is to try to determine with a really clear eye where those points of vulnerability are because the grass is high, as they say. There are certain areas need to be treated now rather than later as opposed to waiting for something to happen. That's what the risk assessment is about, is we've been served fair warning that um, tragedy can strike and even beyond one's ability to imagine. I mean, everything I just talked to you about as I was speaking to you and I was conjuring up the pictures of my head still, it's hard to imagine that. You know, even yet, you know, it's real. So what we want to do is avoid that scenario with every ounce we have in us, every bit of expertise. So that's what this is about, is to be sure if we've got a few places where we know we're really vulnerable, we need to do something about it and do it now. How long will that take to complete? Well, I think we're going to we're in motion now. We're in motion and we're going to you know, engage the public. It's not it's not. Um, it's not a mystery, you know, and our fire department, to my surprise, I shouldn't say it that way because they're pretty on top of things, already had a lot of knowledge. They, they knew they know certain areas. Uh, they've watched certain areas. So it's just it's just we just are shifting from any kind of passivity that we might have had because, you know, we've gotten away for a very long time as one of the. The forest ranger said, we've been living on luck for a very long time. That kind of luck can almost be seductive. You know, you start to think, well, it'll never really happen. You know how people get, it's human nature, even professionals. So this is like, no, this can't happen. There's a high probability. And so if we know that ahead of time, what are we going to do about it? So is there funding behind this and, and where will that come from? Well, in the, in the beginning here, we're going to take it out of operations, but we're applying for a lot of a lot of grants and this federal money is available. I think the sensitivity, you know, we um, we have an advantage in applying for a grant based on Lahaina. You know, it's the worst fire in the last hundred years and it became a global story. And certainly everybody in Washington was more than well aware. So and we've, you know, we've got good Washington representation. So it's not like out of the blue here, all of a sudden we're going to stand in line. I'm hoping that we'll be given priority treatment, given the incredible amount of devastation that took place. Switching gears now, Mayor, you got to deliver some good news towards the end of last month. A new convenience center in Kapolei. Yeah. What do you think that does for that community, that side of the island, really the island as a whole? Well, you know, before I was mayor, I never really thought about the impact of convenience centers per se. But I can tell you this one, um, and having gone to a couple of the others when we have actually done a few things to them, really matters to the community. And of course, it matters to us at the city and county and all the residing neighborhoods because we really want to, you know, put an end to illegal dumping, creating unsightly mess and everything else that goes on. Um, but this convenience center, uh, I think, was a real shot in the arm for the people out there on the west side because it's three times bigger than anything we've had before. It's modern, it's clean, it's easy to access, um, you know, and I think that the people feel like, well, I can tell you what was said to me, that we actually, it just shows that people care, you know, and this we're providing a resource for them in the spirit of them taking care of their own neighborhoods and everything else and doing things properly. It was, uh, people were very excited about it. I was excited, people were so excited about it. I mean, it, it, I, it's really a good thing. At that press conference for the Coppola Convenience Center, a reporter asked about the future landfill site. Yep. And you, you've made it a point trying to avoid the west side well yeah yeah i said clearly we you know what he was talking about 
was the fact that there are four sites that were listed as possibilities after the exhaustive study we went through and all of those sites were rejected because everything on Oahu is over an aquifer in the no-pass zones. Mm -hmm. So somebody, it wasn't me, that could, you know, put up the list and say, well, hypothetically speaking, the only places that exist that wouldn't be over an aquifer were, were, were the four following spots. To which I said, but that should not be misconstrued that that's the list that we're working on necessarily. I've, I've been really clear that it, when the Navy has been very supportive. Just two weeks ago, I took a meeting with Admiral Agolino, the head of Indo-PACOM, and Secret Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Berger, uh, on two separate occasions, all on landfill. They're very aware of the possibilities of what they could do to help this island, especially given their involvement with Red Hill and all that that triggered. Because quite honestly, had Red Hill not happened, maybe the discussions on building an aquifer or, or building uh, a landfill over an aquifer with some distance in height might have been entertained because today's yeah. technology really could allow you to do that. But the sensitivity, given what we've all been through and the very real threat of having our drinking water poisoned, and in fact it was in places and we saw what happened to people and so on, that's a non-starter. And it's off the table. So between that being off the table, the west side being off the table, you know, we're limited to a couple of places. But there are, there are some possibilities, and we're working on it. What I said I'm not going to do, I don't mind talking openly about the support and the discussions we have with the Navy, is I'm not going to negotiate with the Navy or the military um, through the press. Right about what we're discussing at the table because that's not fair to them and I'm not gonna I'm not going to develop that conversation publicly. Right now we're asking for a lot of concessions. They understand that because of the unique circumstances. They're open minded to that. But I know enough about things. If you talk prematurely in that you can do more damage than good. I want to go back to the west side for a bit. You recently took up a meeting with some of the leaders. We did. Represent. Oh, so how, was, how was that meeting? Yeah, you know, um, it's like anything like that. We were there for a reason because uh, irrespective of what the statistics say, because one could argue that the murder rate is actually down a little bit. I don't want to do that. It seems like, you know, we're, we've had more shootings that I can remember. I remember maybe three years into government, but having worked in town over all those many years with news operations and the countless stories we've done, it just feels much more aggressive, much more violent with the shootings that have taken place, primarily and especially among our young people. And you you, know, you start to wonder what's behind that. You know, um, I came from a generation where the big deal was a fist fight. Not that you couldn't get hurt badly in a fist fight. But it used to be like that. Today, you know, and as Chief Logan talked, it's not some random act. It's not like the main shooter where somebody shows up with an AR-15 and kills a bunch of innocent people. You know, and I realize that that's a mass shooting, but it's not a person killing random. All of these things that happen are people who know each other. And in fact, the support of uh, online, social media, threats and stuff going back and forth and the taunts and whatever, it's, um, you know, it's not good. And so that kind of retaliation that way where you could kill somebody or seriously hurt somebody 
we have to put it into that. It's more that than the actual numbers. It's that feeling that that's out there right now. And ghost guns are in the market. People don't know exactly know where they solicited it from. Um, and you've got a younger generation that seems to be quick to want to pull a trigger instead of dealing with, you know, discourse or altercations differently. So, you know, um, it's not easy. We talked through it. There was no silver bullet. I mean, clearly, a lot of this does start at home. You want parents. It starts with communities maybe taking back. I know I've been a, I have been a strong proponent of community watch programs. We've walked in, we've walked in them in Ma'ili. We've walked in them in, in Mililani. Um, we've I've, I've talked openly about that. The community can help, but at the end of the day. Um, We've got to be able to do something, and nobody quite knows what to do right now because of the accessibility of ghost guns um, the, in the way that they get in here, and then this mindset of our young people. So we talked about educational programs. You know, I witnessed a program uh, last week. Um, you know, young kids on on garbage, on 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 teaching young kids. Really well done. Uh, about you know refuse and, and sorting out and what and I thought wow you know what a great way to start kids out understanding the need to recycle and reuse and it was really well done and um, we need to probably do something like that as well in reaching kids but that's the long term that kind of education we got to do something in the short term so there was talk about beach closures and a lot of other remedies pretty aggressive. But everybody soon realized, which we've already encountered as an administration, given the fact we're being sued by the ACLU, you can't just close these places, even though you know it could be highly effective. So we have to work through this. This is going to be a complicated problem, but I, but it's not one you can ignore. And I think it's one that we have to put a lot of time and energy into and enlist as many people uh, as we possibly can. Um, because as I listen to the people on the west side, particularly in the Nanakui area, Wainai area, you know, it's anything but feeling safe. It's very dangerous. And people shouldn't have to feel like they have to lock themselves in their houses at night because if they go outside, I mean, that sounds like, you know, gangland L.A. I, I, that's just not who we are. Not do we ever want to become. So, As you were talking, I, was, I remembered those two young kids that came in here last month. Um, you talked about kind of students taking this into their own hands and the educational aspect. You had two very talented youngsters who talked about Bill 46, prohibiting the sale of flavored tobacco. You know, these kids are, they're the ones that kind of help write testimony and, and they're they are paving their own way. Why was that measure so important to you? Well, you went on to sign that. Yeah, I did. And, and you know, and it wasn't the perfect bill. And I, there was even an editorial last Sunday in the paper about saying it wasn't the perfect bill, but they weren't disputing the fact that this was a step in the right direction. We've got to get the state to support it. You know, to me, you know, you know, vaping is not harmless. You know, the amount of nicotine in vaping is, and getting kids addicted to it at early ages and everything else, the physical... There are physical, physiological ramifications to nicotine. And um, and that's why you have the Surgeon General's report on packages of cigarettes. You can't say this that vaping is any different when it comes to the amount of nicotine that kids are getting addicted to at an early age. And for that matter, the amount of vaping that they were doing is, you know, when you start to look at that, um, 
it's a lot of nicotine, a lot of, it's just wrong. I mean, it was cigarette smoking decreased and the tobacco companies saw another way to market a product, market their product and, and get it out there. And that's exactly what they did. They pivoted knowing for a while that a lot of people who vape is a gateway to cigarette smoking. And I, I don't want to sound like an old prude here. I don't. Um, but I grew up in a generation where everybody smoked, you know, in the 50s, right after World War II. There was no knowledge or feeling that it was bad for you. Maybe some people knew, but, you know, and there wasn't the kind of, and I remember somewhere in the 60s, suddenly there was starting to be a lot of noise about the effects of tobacco and, and, and killing people and all the guys who came back from World War II never smoked, started smoking there and dying young and lung diseases. And then that led to the Surgeon General's ban. Then it led to banning cigarettes, you know, uh, tobacco advertising on television and so on. And just a whole lot of awareness. And that was a long time ago. If I think about it, even when I graduated from college in 69, that's over 50 years ago. It was, it was a, there was an incredible awareness then uh, the effects. Now here we are, all these many years later, and cigarette smoking on its face has decreased considerably. Vaping, on the other hand, was going through the roof and only getting bigger all the time among young kids. Uh, there's something almost cruel about that. Not almost, something cruel about that. And look, as somebody who's lived through life, you get there, you get the different stages of life, and you suddenly realize what you didn't know, and you sit there and go, well, I wish I knew then what I, you know, I didn't know. Kids are vulnerable in the world. And I think as adults, as parents, as people in government roles, we need to protect them. We really do. Somebody's got to watch out for them. They're not like, I know young kids today can come off as being much more sophisticated, I'm sure, than anything I sounded or looked like at 13 or 14. I can promise you that. I've seen it. I've seen it my own kids. I've seen it generationally. But that doesn't mean they're that aware and that and that smart. And and this stuff becomes a social phenomenon. You know, and plus you got to put social media and all the other things, all these enticements and everything else. Um, there needs to be pushback on that because left unchecked, uh, we're, we're, we're letting a lot of kids get hurt. Tailing on that, the month of November, it also is affectionately known in some circles as Movember, a month to raise awareness for men's health issues. Um, I know that this job that you're in takes a whole toll, requires a whole lot of energy and stamina, but Mayor, what kind of things do you do to take care of yourself? Well, <laughs> um, thank you for asking. I mean, well, first of all, I've gotten religious about the gym. And it's three days a week, and boy, if I miss a workout, I it bothers me. So I make myself go there. It's not even optional. It's like it's like any business meeting. I've had enough discipline because this job has its own hours to make sure I do that and not make the excuse. And if something has to happen at a time when I go to the gym, then I'm going to do it later in the day. Although that gets difficult to do, I'm still going to do that. So it's almost like survival because this job does take stamina. But the other thing I've done and and uh, is that. Um, I've just stopped popping things in my mouth. You know, I've just, I've had to get really disciplined about um, not eating that cookie here and there, that little thing Someone that, you know, before, all, all that stuff that's around yeah. you and whatever, just not doing that. And I find that reducing that kind of sugar. And the third thing I've, I've done, I'm doing, which I haven't done since I used to tell my kids what time it was to go to bed, is I make myself go to bed by 11. I don't succeed every night, but, I, but at 11 o'clock, 
I tell myself, I never used to do that before. But um, but I try to get to bed and get to sleep by 1130 because I'm up by five every morning. Um, and that is more sleep than I used to get. But the days of this job are really intense and you need that stamina. That's the only reason for working out and everything else is just to have the energy. Because the thing that I've learned, when it gets to the mayor's office, first and foremost, most people waited to have the meeting. And when we get in this room to discuss their issues, they're always very serious. It's one of the things I love about the job is the seriousness of the work. And then when we're not meeting like that on really important issues, just the interaction with our various cabinet members and the work that they're doing is also heavily focused, heavily concentrated because everybody's pushing, trying to do a good job. So, you know, there isn't a lot of downtime in a day. You know, we, we just power through and, you know, I, I used to go to lunch a couple of days a week as part of my job, my former life. I don't think I eat one. I don't think I eat once, maybe once a month I eat out. I, I don't go out. I mean, we just, we pretty much schedule through the day. And then the other part of it, this job, I shouldn't say this job, being mayor, um, boy, you could go out every single night. I mean, there's something going on all the time. I try to limit it to four nights a week. I'm not always good at that. Um and I try to get my wife to come with at least one of those and then try to say, ideally. She doesn't want to pick up the speaking engagements for you? No, no, she has, she'll, she's gone and represented me a couple of times to my surprise. Um, you know, uh, last week she, she came to General Flynn's dinner, but uh, but and we ended up Saturday afternoon in a pumpkin patch out at the Loon Farms. And she came, which surprised me, you know. Um, but I promised Alex, but, but sometimes she'll go alone. Uh, but it, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's understanding, and especially now, we're still in that post-COVID environment. I, I could tell you, this, I still have gone to some things recently where people said, you know, we haven't done this the last couple of years. It's our first time. Yeah. And, and you want to go and you want to be supportive because they're excited and you feel that in that spirit of trying to get our city going again yeah okay i'll be there you know so it's it's like that but i i think my life is much more disciplined this way with respect to working out and sleeping and eating than it ever was before but it's almost like feeling like going back to my old days a long time ago like being an athlete and training because i don't i think if you don't take care of yourself that way It'll, it'll start to manifest. And look, I have my age going against me. You know, people, I don't want anybody thinking, because I've listened to the Washington narrative about our senior politicians. I'm not far from them in age. And I don't want anybody to confuse the fact that I'm 77 years old and I can't hold my own. I'm just going to be saying it like that. It's my personal pride, my personal drive, that as long as I hold this position of being mayor, that I can show myself fit to do the job. You know, Mayor, Movember also highlights suicide prevention among men and mental health. I'm going to ask you this because I think it's a hard question for men to talk about sometimes. Yeah. And maybe if someone like you is comfortable, then maybe they will feel comfortable too. But what kind of things do you do to center yourself, right? To really focus on your mental health yeah. on the end of the day. You know, there's an old cliche about an attitude of gratitude. But honestly, um, you got to look at the good things in life. And we're all challenged. Nobody gets through this like, and I've watched, I know a lot of people, and some candidly get it worse than others, but everybody gets roughed up. Everybody's had the negative experiences. Everybody's had the disappointments. Everybody's had the heartaches and everybody's been bruised, but we continue to go through. It's part of the human condition, the human spirit. And so I remind myself a lot of times that uh, this might sound 
primal, but you know, man is a rugged animal. And sometimes we ask too little of ourselves, our capability and our capacity. So, you know, I try to stay focused on the positives. You know, my, my daughter just had her, her fourth daughter last week. I have a new granddaughter. That's a good thing. Even though I don't see them, it still feels good. There are other things, the people I work with. I mean, I just stay on the positive. It's easy to go dark and stay there. And I realize that some of these people are dealing with things that really involve on the fringe, if not mental illness of some kind. You know, far be it for me, I've never suffered from PTSD, but I know that that's very real because, you know, things like that. Um, but as best I can, it's about really trying to stay positive because it's like I said, it's too seductive to go negative and it gets dark and get really dark and you get stuck there. I just fight against that. I don't know what else I can say. Uh, so. Let's switch over to some positive news while, okay. while you're mentioning that it. You attended good. the homecoming game for the University of Hawaii football team. Positive for some, maybe not for others, but there was a lot to be celebrated. The 100 years for the band, the historic 73 team was 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, that 9-2 and two team that arguably picked up one of the most impressive upsets. Well, we beat Washington history. in the opening game. Yeah, 10-7. <laughs> to seven. It was a great win over the Huskies. Well, what, did, what did being there mean to you? Well, I was great to see some of the guys that I coached and be called coach again and hugged and, you know, crazy. They're all old men now like me, um, as you would expect, right? You know, you 50, the team of 50 years ago, except they were players. They're a little bit younger than me and I was coaching, but that was my first four years. In fact, that season began on my 27th birthday. So I was 27 years old. So these guys were six or seven years mm -hmm. younger, maybe five years younger in the case of a couple of seniors. So it was nice to see about, 12 of them, 14 of them or so turn out and get caught up. Other than that, you know, the game itself, I, f I felt bad. I mean, we're in a very precarious state, but uh, you asked me to stay on the positive. So that part was nice. It was great. It was an honor to present the band, the UH band, which I've always loved, with a proclamation for its 100th birthday. What, what an incredible run the band has had. Um, and so that was a nice thing, like you said already. But I'm really worried about this football team yeah. right now, uh, and, and rightfully so. Not in the short term. they got four games left this season. It's pretty predictable on where things are probably going to finish yeah. up based on circumstances. But this isn't just one season. Mm -hmm. This is now back-to-back -back losing seasons. This is a stadium in which people at best have come to the extent of being a little bit more than half full. I think when the season average comes up, it'll be less than half. And we had nine, nine the other night reported for homecoming. We had Stanford game was at 12, and the other ones were less than that. That's not a good sign for the future. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, on, on the heels of all of that, knowing how important and how relevant the UH football program was in my personal life as a former player and coach and then spent years announcing and, and involved with the program and knowing full well what a community asset the football team is along with the rest of the athletics program, but the football team in a state that truly loves football uh, and what it even means for high school kids and if the possibility if they would want to stay here, whether they would even consider staying here you know, all of that stuff, that's the fact that it's in the place that it's in is very disturbing to me. I feel very badly for Timmy Chang in a tough situation. And um, and he's a good young man. And uh, they're asking, I felt that way at the time, way too much of him. 
Um, it's not just on the coach's shoulders on wins, wins and losses. There's a lot of other things that have to go on. And I fear that the worst is not over. I fear that the Mountain West is a conference in play. Where we're in there for football only, if that play comes through, we might get left holding the bag. And um, that becomes even more perilous than where we are right now. So, sorry, I started off on a positive, uh, but I just, I, you want to talk about having a heavy heart. Um, I'm really, I am deeply concerned for the program. There's just, there's just a lot of things that aren't going right. And I hate that pay-per-view. I mean, I can't believe the spectrum, I'm going to say it right now, who has the contract, runs advertisements on television that tells people to stay home. Uh, who, who the hell does that? Tell, well, the very thing we need to do is put people in the stands for the sake of not only justifying the expense, uh, uh, the expense of, of expanding the stadium, but what it means for the team to have people, you know, you don't feel the television audience, you feel who's yeah. in the stands. You know, it's a very visceral thing that goes on. You want, you would want, especially knowing the deficit numbers that we only have, can see a little bit more than 15,000. You'd want every one of those seats taken for the sake of the kids playing at home. That's for all they talk about with Texas A&M on the 12th man. That is for everybody. A home field advantage is that crowd. Right. And, and it's at a minimum. Not only that, from a recruiting standpoint, let me tell you, any kid who's good enough to play Division One football is being recruited by anybody. They take them to the mainland. It's the first thing they do. They walk them into the stadium. They walk them into the locker rooms. They show them the trophy cases. They talk about national TV. They show them the Americans, you know, uh, all the all Ameri all that stuff. You know, in fact, a friend of mine, Ricky Ellison, who played at USC, and he just sent me a picture. He was at the 49ers game yesterday, standing in front of all the Super Bowl trophies. So proud. Yeah. That legacy. That's what I'm concerned about. We're losing a sense of be, having a legacy to even build on. And at one point, we had great momentum towards that legacy. And now it's the only conversation is like, what's the win-loss record? As if that was the panacea. It's not. There's a lot more that has to go into that. And I don't see any of it going on. And it's probably exacerbated by the most easily identified thing, which is the win-loss record of the coach or the team. But it's a lot of other stuff. And it's just not happening. Yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. It's almost as if, you know, it's it's different, right? When you walk out on the field, you know when, when there's fans. Yeah. You feel it. You feel it. Um, and you, did you get to walk out of the tunnel on Saturday? I didn't walk out of the tunnel. I was at the tunnel oh, when okay. they walked out. Then we walked out on the field, went out to the side. Yeah, I, I guess I, you know, I wasn't inside the tunnel. I've come out of tunnels in my say, life. I was going to say. Okay. I've come out of tunnels. Bring back any memories? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Look, you're going to play, you're going to play that game. And it was a long time ago when I played. When you play that game, you get into a different state of mind. Yeah. That's the thing about football. This is not about like you and I sitting across the table having a conversation. You go to a place inside of you you didn't even know existed, but that's the that's the that's the seduction of the game right. is it brings that out of you, and it's a very physical game. And when you come out in your home and you hear that crowd in support of you, that's that's just that much better, you know. And then when you go away and you come out, right. and believe me. I came out both as a player and a coach, and you hear the stuff that they yell and stuff like that. That's its own form of adrenaline. But it's that's it. It's it, it's it's a contact sport. You don't do it in a natural state, mm -hmm. you know. And so the fan element is a big part of what goes on in a game. It's a big part, and 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 to have the players, you know, not have the benefit of that yeah. is. Um, it's it's just not what it ought to be. And, and the thing is, for a kid who's going to go through that. 
I found out just last week or a week ago, two weeks ago, they already lost their number one running back. He put himself in the portal. Kids will bail today. That's the other part of the reality today. With the NCAA rules being what they are, every kid is an unrestricted free agent. If he wants to go somewhere, he can no longer even has to redshirt. He can put himself at the highest bidder. But even if he feels like, I don't like this anymore, which is unfair, unfortunately, a lot of that younger generation, they have that mindset. Oh, I don't like this. It's not what I thought it was going to be. Instead of sticking it out and gutting it through and making it good, as best you can make it, they just say, I'm out of here. That's it's precarious, and so you know you have, you have to you have to do things that support that. Simply going to a college to get the education from that university and this prestige, not just in Hawaii, across the board, doesn't seem to be relevant. I can't tell you how many college games I try to pick up bits and pieces here and there, and you're hearing about all these transfers. You know, they're not even saying they're not, you know they'll they'll just they'll just say he came from Alabama, he came from Stanford, he came from you know there's and they're still playing. You know, I mean, look at Bo Nix having this probably Heisman Trophy year coming up up to Oregon was at Auburn for three years. You know, uh, and I think Bo graduated, so he had eligibility, so that was one thing, but. Um, a lot of these guys are just, you know, some of them are playing in two or three programs in their college career. That's so different than, than how it used to be, not just for me as a coach, but even in the game of having a young man come in. We talk about not working on retention and development and developing them and teaching them what we talked about today, about working through adversity, guiding it out, fighting for that starting position, fighting for that starting position, all the practices and everything you've got to go through, not just physical, all the, believe me, all the mental anguish that goes into that when you're fighting for a starting role and then getting that role and then owning it up for the team, for the sake of the team and how you're going to perform on that given day and not have that loss or anything that goes wrong in that game be attributable to you. That kind of stuff lasts a lifetime. What you learn in the critical aspects of that, when you have to undergo that, I just, I just don't know if kids are developing that same kind of mental toughness. I just don't. I'm not saying the game isn't great. You watch these guys play, the high caliber athletes, the ones you see featured on TV. But you know, those are high caliber athletes. You got a lot of other guys on the second and third teams or whatever, drifting along in different places. You know, you 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 wonder about that and what they're really getting it from. It's not good for the game. That's how I feel. It's not good for universities. I, I really don't think it is. I think, uh, call me old school, but there's something to be said for, uh, you know, when you get recruited, your loyalty to that staff, the team you play with, the school, all of that stuff. It used to have a lot of good feelings to that. Well, Mayor, this is the One Oahu podcast. So for one final thought about anything, really. Well, thank you for allowing me to rant on football. But it's just, again, I'm going to bring it back as mayor. It's a community event. I know enough to know that when Hawaii teams win, it's not just the Hawaii teams that win. It's Hawaii that wins. And we are at a time right now, especially with a sport like football, knowing full well that people in the state love it, passionate. We turn out so many great football players in, 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 in generations of football players that that hasn't gone away. And will continue because the quality of athletes we have here, I'm just, you know, I just somehow, some way that needs to get turned around. But I thank you for indulging me like that. Again, I want to wish Timmy Chang the best of luck. He's in an impossible situation, but I, but I, he's being the warrior right now. He's the man in the arena who's getting his nose bloodied. And I always have respect for that. Mayor, thank you for your time. You're welcome.